From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Shirley Smith, wife of NBA star and former Denver Nugget J.R. Smith, calls her daughter Dakota a miracle. She was born nearly five months premature. I'm going through the roller coaster of just wanting my child to survive. But slowly, as the years pass, it's turned into, wow, God, you see me fit to raise such a gift. Today, Smith shares the mental health challenges she's overcome. Then, Farai Chadea joins us from Our Body Politics. How do you make sense of the politics of trauma? How do you try not to be overly triggered by, you know, whatever's going on around you and how you feel about it so that you can take a step back and say, am I making a healthy decision for myself, my family, my community, and my country? I'm J.C. Futrell, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. My family and I love CPR. That's where we get our news, our entertainment, and we love the local stories. It's been a dream of ours for years to be able to donate a car. We uh, totally recommend it for anyone else to do. It took just a few days between submitting online and having the tow guy come and take our vehicle away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. There's a saying, never get between a mama bear and her cubs. Well, Shirley Smith can relate, and she's living proof that it's true. The wife of NBA star J.R. Smith delivered her daughter at just 21 weeks, and many of the mental health challenges she's faced in her life unfolded in Colorado while her husband was making moves on the basketball court as a Denver Nugget. Shirley Smith recounts it all in vivid detail in her book, Mama Bear, One Black Mother's Fight for Her Child's Life and Her Own. She was recently back in Denver for an event aimed at raising awareness about mental health challenges in the Black community. Shirley, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. In this memoir, you recall giving birth to a one-pound miracle baby Quote, I had to rely on God. Can you give us a sense of what happened? Well, I'm sure as you can imagine, it's um, it's no quick snapshot (laughs) when you're in this situation um, of having a premature baby. If I could be even more specific, a micro preemie. Um, Dakota was born five months early Hmm. at 21 weeks and zero days. I barely had a stomach when I had her. Wow. And she was in the hospital for 141 days. Um, Now, coming from having my oldest daughter at the time was eight years old. She was full term. Um, My husband at the time was playing for the Cavaliers and we were looking to go to the championship. And it was just highlights was going on all around our lives. So when I got rushed to the hospital, the last thing I was thinking that was that I was getting ready to give birth to Dakota. Period. I was like, this is not happening. But guess what? Shirley quickly realized that she is not exempt and life happened in that moment. So no matter all of the highlights that's going on around you, none of us are exempt to go through real life issues and trauma. And that was my reality within that moment and all the way up to days to come up until now. It literally was foreign to me. 
Do you understand that I'm saying five years ago, I had no clue what a premature birth was, even further, a micro preemie. So when they were talking to me and communicating with me, you're having this baby early. She's going to be a micro preemie, premature. I'm, I'm looking like, what are you talking about? I can't comprehend. I don't even know what it is. Yeah. So just to cut dry from that, she was in the hospital for 141 days of a roller coaster. She went through um, surgeries. She had to be on someone else's breast milk that I talk about in my book in order for her to gain her first real pound. Wow. Um, it just was so much. Like I said, it's, it's variations that is never like a quick snippet of the story because it just didn't happen like that. But if I wanted to give you key pointers of the part of my journey, that was the beginning of it. And just to be clear, your daughter, Dakota, is one of the youngest premature babies to ever survive. How does that feel to hear that after all that you experienced? Um, well, initially, when I first had her, she was the youngest. And now to hear that she's amongst one of the youngest is just like, what the, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like, what, the, you know, what I want to say, like, what? And... It slowly transitioned into, wow, I'm that special to have such a dominant and prominent miracle in my life. Mm-hmm. So initially, it's like you don't care. You could give a, a rat's butt that she's she's on Wikipedia and you could I could care less. I don't care because I'm going through the trauma and I'm going through getting through the process. I'm going through the roller coaster of just wanting my child to, to, to survive. But slowly, as the years pass, it's turned into, wow, God, you see me fit to raise such a gift. And your book is about, of course, mental health and your own struggles and challenges. But you also use this book to heighten the awareness about the crisis of Black maternal and infant health. And so what is it that you want people to know about that? First and foremost, what I'm learning on my own personal journey is if each one can teach one, and even if it's just one, we can make some sort of a stamp, some sort of an imprint and some sort of a difference within our world. Um, Black maternal health is serious. I grew up um, in the inner city in poverty, North New Jersey. Um, My mom was addicted to crack cocaine. So in the 90s, when that was just the happening thing and the thing to do, myself and my siblings suffered a great deal, even to the point of lacking food, lacking health, missing school. And all of that played a role on my mental stability, on my mental growth, on my mental health, which I know correlated to me having stressors and trauma decades later, having my daughter early, if that makes sense. What I will say is, In these communities, because I'm African-American, in these communities, we don't have access like everyone else do to Whole Foods or to prominent health care or things that will make a difference and reshape our lives growing up. So we end up suffering and it becomes a generational thing and it becomes a habit and it becomes the norm and it's not okay. And we carry it and we carry it and we carry it and we suffer in silence. So The purpose of Mama Bear is to not only tell my story so people can look at me and say, hey, she's relatable. She's transparent. She's me. I'm her. She's me. 
but to see on the other side that if I can get through it, so can you. And that's what we need more of. Your book has been described as brave, compelling, provocative. And that, of course, was from Gabrielle Union Wade, the actress and also wife of NBA star Dwayne Wade. And you talked a lot about your challenges growing up, what that was like dealing with, you know, stress and poverty and grief and trauma. Mm-hmm. What do we learn in the book about your own personal struggle with mental health? Yeah, I suffered in silence. I became an introvert. I felt like I did not have a voice. I felt like I did not realize up until two years ago that I was suffering from a core wound. And I've been doing a lot of dissecting on core wounds because that's something else that we suffer from. Um, I felt like I didn't matter. So for my mental stability, it was unstable because my mom left me. She went on binges. So I didn't matter. My father, he was never around because I didn't matter. Oh, the guy who I thought was my father, I found out at the age of 25, he wasn't my real father because I didn't matter. So I went through all of these things as, shoot, I was eight years old when it all started. So from eight years old up until three years ago, I'm about to be 38, (laughs) mentally I suffered because I'm, I'm in a ripple and I'm in a rabbit hole of living from the aspect of what I saw living off of instinct, living off of survival mode, living off of doing for others before I even take care of myself. Self-care, what's that? Self-love, does that exist? So all of these things that are planted on us mentally, within us mentally, um, they leave a stain. And for lack of better terms, they drag us through the mud until we can wake up one day to say, hey, this is not okay. And that's what I'm here to do through my nonprofit, my Coda Bear, where we service families within the NICU. I'm here to stand and say, hey, guys, it's not OK. I'm here to help through dropping jewels. I help young women with self-esteem, self-love, teenagers to stand and say, hey, I'm here to help you because it's not OK. How do you think what you experienced, how do you feel that connects with overall how many people of color, particularly African-Americans and African-American women, the struggles that they have with mental health in our society? I kind of feel like you ever heard of the um, the statement P-O-M-E? Hmm, no. P-O-M-E, what I learned growing up is you become a product of your environment. So P-O-M-E, I'm a product of my environment. So what I've learned and how I know I am relatable to other women within the African-American community is because we learn to lean on each other. So when I was talking about the survival mode or the survival instincts within our community, we lean on one another because we feel like this is all we have because we don't know if we happen to the outside world, which may be other races, other um, cultures, stuff like that, if we will truly get the help that we need. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about systemic racism and even going back to our ancestors in slavery, we're standing on the backs of them. And to take it even one step deeper, what I'm what I'm recognizing and uncovering is the fact that our parents and our grandparents are only teaching us or they only taught us what they knew. 
So if you can sit and think about that, you'll understand how far back this goes. So we have a lot of work to do. And I'm only just one person. So that's why I'm saying if each one teach one, we can stand and be a force to be reckoned with when it comes to mental health and helping each other and pulling our sisters and brothers up and just saying, hey, I care about your mind. How is your heart? You understand what I'm saying? Like, it's not about the visual or the outside. How's your heart? How's your head? You know? So it, it goes back deep. It really, really does. And um, it's a lot of layers that need to be pulled back. But I know I'm relatable because I've been there. I've done that. I'm still in it. I'm still healing. And I've gone through so many things in my life <laughs> that I feel like I can touch on any subject or be relatable to any matter or situation when it comes to um, stressors, prematurity, um, in a limelight of celebrityism when you have a husband that, I mean, you you say it in some way, shape or form, I feel like I can touch it to be of some sort of help. Most people look at uh, from the outside, say, hey, this person has wealth and fame and you know, a lot of resources that a lot of people feel like, oh, if I had that, I wouldn't have any problems. And so to hear you as the wife of an NBA star talking about these struggles, um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering, do you remember any times specifically when you were in Denver, you know, as this NBA wife, but privately struggling? Yeah, um, <laughs> I remember a couple of times and things when I was in Denver um, because that's actually where our oldest daughter was born mm -hmm. and I had her at Rose Medical Center and um, I remember going to the game you know the outside appearance you know you get dressed and shoot back then I thought I was cute doing something but whatever. <laughs> so, I'm sure you were cute <laughs> so I'm going to the game you know okay let me look like this be cute be nice but one thing that was always attractive outside of anything within me, and I'm glad I can stand and say that now, is my personality. Mm -hmm. Because that's what allows me to have long sustainability in relationships that I still have up until this day. But anyway, I say that to say, I remember being in the penthouse with my oldest daughter, Demi, who was a newborn or baby, infant, three months, crying. Like, I had no family there. Mm. Men had made the decision for me to have her out there, which was fine. I know that's what we decided. That's what I decided. But he was always on a roll. And it was just, I was really sad. I just, I had a daughter, but didn't know my identity. Yeah. Okay, I had to care for you, but who am I? You know, I had, yeah, I, I, I was suffering. Like, it was a lot of dark days where I just cried. And I masked it by um, doing and giving and helping and making sure JR was okay, making sure um, Demi was okay. She was being fed, but in the, in the background, I was invisible to myself. And that all came from me not knowing my words and just mentally gone. He's here. He's there. It's just, it's, 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 it's a bit much. And I can totally relate to you. Um, I have recently celebrated my 10th anniversary here in Colorado. Um, but as I as I've told many, um, you know, I moved here with the five month old and, you know, I was married first child, both of us first time parents, my husband and I. And we did not have a lot of help. In fact, basically no help <laughs> for four years. And uh, a lot of times um, people 
particularly moms, are afraid to acknowledge, you know, how tough it is and how isolating it is to, you know, care for a child and not have backup support or just friendships to lean on or people to decompress with. So I can totally understand that I I try really hard now that I've, you know, obviously been established 10 years in Colorado and have Mm -hmm. built the village. It's great, but you never want to really forget what that's like. And and I think that, you know, that kind of seems to be the core of your message is that we need to speak up. We need to reach out for help and we need to let people know that we need support. Yes. And, and be OK with your I'm not OK. What did it mean to you to be in Denver and stand at that podium in a room filled with people listening to your story? What did that mean to you? Wow. Initially, I didn't um, I did not realize the magnitude or the impact of what really was happening or transpiring, because I'm kind of like a I don't know if you want to call me like a bird, like la 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 la. (laughs) And because I just go, go, go and do, do, do. But a lot of times I have a problem sitting in my accomplishments. So I did not understand the magnitude of what all transpired until after. But when I was able to receive the emails and reflect on even just being able to bring my daughter, because my oldest daughter was there. She had never been back to Denver to see where she was born, where she was from. Wow. So for me to be able, I'm getting chills and goosebumps. Wow. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> for me to be able to make the sound decision for her to go back to see where she was born so she will not have questions like I did. Hmm. So that's what it started as. It started as a trip for my oldest daughter turning 13. That was her birthday gift, me taking her to see where she was born and riding her around the streets of Denver, of you know, Colorado, just different areas, the Pepsi Center, all of that. That's what it started off as, and it unfolded into the whole event. But me sitting here talking to you about it now is like the magnitude of what transpired that weekend, I cannot put it into words because I broke so many chains. Like God answered so many prayers for me to be able to just make that leap and fly out there for one thing and look what it turned into because he knew my heart. Now, did you take her on Colfax? <laughs> yes, I did. I took her. Did you tell her it was the longest street in America? In America. She was like, Mom, no way. <laughs> and then we snowed <laughs> while we were there. It was perfect. It was perfect. And then she was there at the event. That was her first time seeing me in action. Wow. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. It was unreal. And just to be back there to represent like, hey, guys, I love it here just as much. You know, my program is going to be running here soon. I'm coming back to do a community baby shower. Yeah. it's <laughs> Well, we would love to I'm have alone. you back. We'll love to have yes, you back. I, you know, Russell I, Wilson yeah. and Sierra's here now. <laughs> Yes, they are. How crazy is that? I know. Who would have imagined? (laughs) I know. And they do so much for the community as well. So that's a blessing for them to be out there with you guys. Well, before we go, we have to ask, how is Dakota now? Mm -mm -mm. Let me tell you something. (laughs) I was just downstairs with Dakota showing her how to properly give her dogs treats and make them sit. Wow. Um. Dakota is meeting her milestones. When I say she is truly a butterfly that has blossomed, 
right before my eyes, she's now putting together two to three words like mommy, mommy milk and stuff like that. Like she's been trying to talk vocally and verbally within the last six months. And that's just one more thing that I do want to say really quickly before we end. Dakota is doing unbelievable. I'll take every minute of what I get to experience with her today. But I did not notice a drastic change in her growth until I changed. Until I broke the shackles and barriers off of my life and made a healthy, sound decision to treat myself better, to do better, to get help, to be in therapy, and to correct my mental instability is when I seen her soar off. Wow. Well, that seems to be the perfect message as we wrap up. You know, there is help. There are resources. And um, it's for you to tap into to grow and reach these milestones, just like Dakota has, right? Yes, absolutely. All starts with self. Starts with self. When you wake up every day, who do you look at in the mirror? If you even look in the mirror, yourself. Shirley, thank you so much for sharing your story and your journey and your children's journey and your family with us on Colorado Matters. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. God bless. Shirley Smith is the wife of NBA star and former Denver Nugget, J.R. Smith. According to the Centers for Disease Control, Black women in the United States are 50% more likely to have a premature baby than white women. It points to socioeconomic inequalities that often lead to disparities in health and limits access to quality health care. According to the CDC, Black infants in America also die at more than two times the rate of white babies. In honor of her miracle baby Dakota, Shirley Smith founded the nonprofit Mycota Bear to support other parents with babies in the NICU. When we come back from mental health to voting power, elevating the voices of Black women with Our Body Politic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado Matters is live in Grand Junction for the next Turn the Page, a conversation with nature and adventure writer Craig Childs. His latest book contemplates the beauty and meaning of rock art on the caves, canyons, and cliffs of the Colorado Plateau. When you see images painted or packed on stone, you're seeing the original inhabitants. And when you start looking around, you realize they're everywhere. Pick up a copy of Tracing Time and join Colorado Matters September 6th in Grand Junction. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. Faride Chidea, the name likely rings a bell. She's a bona fide NPR vet. Remember that show News and Notes in the mid-2000s? A multiple award-winning journalist and self-described media entrepreneur, Farai now hosts and produces Our Body Politic. The weekly podcast unapologetically centers on reporting on not just how women of color experience the major political events of today, but also how we, as women of color, are impacting America's political landscape. We are pleased to welcome Farai today on Colorado Matters. I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you. Well, you have done it all. You're a veteran journalist, author, blogger, and your resume is just, I mean, completely remarkable. You've been the host of NPR's News and Notes, a reporter for ABC News, a political analyst for CNN, a host for the Oxygen Network, a consumer data and privacy reporter for The Intercept, 
and a reporter for Newsweek magazine. And the awards are countless. What stands out to you most when you reflect back on clearly an amazing career? You know, I think at this stage, um, you know, a lot of what I do is based on what's good for the next generation of journalists. And it's not that I am putting myself out to pasture, but one of the adventures we're going to have on Our Body Politic moving ahead is slowly introducing a few other voices who can take the host seat. And that's important to me because as someone who's responsible in this case, in a way that I've never been before for raising the money and running the business operations of this independently produced public radio show um, that luckily has found a home on your network and many other, you know, stations and networks across the country. I want to I want this to be a legacy for uh, black women and all women of color who can also learn to host and I was really lucky that I got the chance, you know, Mm. I was hired as a reporter and I kind of became a host by accident. And I just feel really strongly about um, holding the seat and what that means to hold the seat, because I do know a lot of things, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of things, Um, not to be self-aggrandizing, but I've just reached a certain age and been a reporter most of my life. So I know things and that's valuable, but it's also valuable to have other people be able to tell stories. And Mm. every stage of life and every perspective has different gifts that it brings. So um, as much as I'm excited for our show to flourish and for us to, you know, air like broadly across the country, I'm also excited about bringing in new voices. Yeah, it's interesting because Glamour magazine says our body politic, and this is a quote, manages to be both a political and cultural cheat sheet and extremely listenable. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, no, that was really nice. And that was when we first got started. So we were so hungry to get the word out and so happy. And and I really started this show out of a feeling of responsibility. Um, my mother and sister have both worked in health and public health. And we launched the show in September of 2020 with the election looming, but also with the pandemic in mind. And as times change, certainly COVID is still real and we continue to talk about it, but we're also talking about the mental health crisis in this country. And um, and I want us to be attuned to what people actually want and need, like how the conversations we need to have, conversations about elder care, about aging, uh, about Black maternal deaths mm. and, and the Black maternal health crisis. I want us to have these conversations about... Um, things that we really need to address to keep ourselves alive and healthy, as well as to keep democracy healthy. I would imagine that working on news and notes in some ways helped lay the foundation for this podcast. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you'll have to tell folks about our connection there. Um, But yeah, news and notes was actually that time that I got to be the accidental host, you know, um, Tavis had had his show on NPR. He left and Ed Gordon initiated news and notes. And when he left, I was the I was the field reporter and I was doing things like I did this drive across country reporting from different places. I, you know, I did various things. And then I got the chance to take the host seat once um, he moved on. And it really is, you know, I can't believe now. I mean, I'm doing weekly and it seems 
challenging. Mm. I was doing daily with news and notes and I was working at 4 a.m. Pacific. You know, it was originally, uh, well, not originally, but in this iteration, it had been hosted from the East Coast and being hosted from the West Coast, you have a 6 a.m., you know, time that you have to be on the air doing the first run live. And that means you have to be there at 4 a.m. But it was such an incredible reception to be able to do a show by and about Black culture and um, and then have it also reach a wide audience. You know, so many Black people, but also so many people who, you know, uh, would say things to me like, I never thought about it that way, or mm. I was so grateful to learn that. And and I feel like we still get a lot of that with um, our body politic. You know, our our public radio audience is majority white, and I think they really get a lot from listening to perspectives that are coming from inside um, communities of color. Like, we just recorded one about Brittany Griner, who, of course, was sentenced to nine years for having a marijuana vape pen, which she was prescribed by her doctor in Russia as she was playing during the off season. And we had um, an incredible legal expert and also an incredible geopolitical expert, um, you know, uh, Kimberly St. Julian Varnon, who we've had on before, but she's a black woman who specializes in Russia and Eastern Europe. You know, black people do everything and you'll hear them on our show. You'll hear women of color on our show. You'll also hear white men on our show. But um, we focus on the women of color in every field from the military to corporate finance who are just doing it. Speaking of doing it, you hinted to this, and I just want to clarify uh, our little connection that we uh, were recently reminded of is I used to be a staff writer for Atlanta Magazine in Another Life, and I used to be on Farai's Reporters Roundtable on News and Notes, where we would uh, meet on Fridays. It would be a group of uh, Black journalists, and we would talk about the hot topics and news stories of the week. And I also had an opportunity when you brought the show to Atlanta to be on that panel. And it was just so electric to be. Oh, that in was front. such a great day. Yeah, yeah, it was so awesome to I be in front of a live audience. Yeah. yeah, you mm-hmm. just can't, you know, it's, it's just an electric feeling. And so uh, that is definitely one of the more memorable moments in my career. So it's great to reconnect uh, beyond that. But you mentioned, of course, we're here to talk about body politic. I'm just curious. What inspired the name of the of the podcast? Yeah, I wanted it to be our body politic because, you know, the the phrase the body politic is used to describe, you know, citizenry or um, sometimes leaders of citizens. And our body politic to me was just a very simple play on words. It's like we are the body politic and we also are embodied. I think that you can't get through life as a black woman or a woman of color not understanding that your body is part of your politics, that the fact that you're a Mm. woman and have reproductive organs, even if, you know, you choose not to have children or don't ever get pregnant, is part of your political identity. Um, How you are perceived based on your phenotype, skin color, whatever, even if it's inaccurate, is still part of who you are. Like there are people who are people of color who look white, like some members of my family, 
And that's still a way in which they have to live in an embodied way with how other people perceive them and how they perceive themselves. Um, And so I really liked our body politic as a way of saying, because we can start breaking things down. We know about, you know, criminal justice statistics, uh, black maternal mortality, all these ways in which how we are embodied affects how we live in a democracy. And so that's really what I think we get at. We want to take a listen to some of what was discussed in a recent episode. Here on Our Body Politic, we recently spoke with Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, who's been spearheading a national bill, H.R. 40, to research reparations. It is the umbrella to lack of voting rights. It is the umbrella to lack of health care. It is the umbrella to poor education. It was first introduced three decades ago. And now some supporters are urging President Biden to sign an executive order if the bill cannot pass the Senate. The Big Payback is a new documentary premiering this month at the Tribeca Film Festival, and it follows bills over the past few years through the public's heated debates around race. Joining me now are the documentary's co-directors, Erica Alexander and Whitney Dow, as well as former Fifth Ward Alderman for the city of Evanston, Illinois, Robin Rue Simmons. She is now the executive director of a nonprofit, First Repair for local communities considering reparations. So, Erica, let me start with you. Why this story? So I think like a lot of people, when I started this journey, I think I mistook reparations in the movement as this personal admission or apology for payment to Black people or descendants of slaves and um, proof of that moral debt toward me and or any African-American. And it took a while to be educated about it by those who were committed, one of them obviously Robert Ruth Simmons and Sheila Jackson Lee and many of the grassroots organizations in it. But why now? Because uh, the debt resides within the fabric of America and they owe us. That is the bottom line. They owe us for how we built America and they never gave us that, that apology or any um, remuneration for that. And so we carry on the work to try to get this social justice for African-Americans in our lifetime. And whether we do or not or live to see it, it's a worthy subject and a worthy issue and a worthy mission. Can you speak to why that episode in particular stood out to you? Well, you know, I mean, I think that we do conversations about things like reparations in ways that are really um, in-depth and maybe a little unusual. Uh, So, We covered a film called The Big Payback, which is about how Evanston, Illinois, became the first city to issue local reparations. They had legalized marijuana, and instead of the money going just into the regular tax coffers, they decided it would pay for reparations for land that was misappropriated from local Black families. And I think that, you know, this was an example of a lot of times we try to tie a local issue and a national issue together. Mm -hmm. And it was also a chance for us to acknowledge other media makers like the filmmakers who did the big payback, uh, one of whom is Erica Alexander, who spent years as an actor and and then became a filmmaker and organizer. Yeah. Yeah. And she's really done quite a lot, you know, in that role. And so, you know, I, I've done reporting in Colorado in the past, many different types of reporting. Um, 
I reported, you know, on the Tea Party movement. I reported on immigration. I reported on racial diversity um, and how Colorado, you know, particularly Aurora at the time I was reporting in the 90s for print was kind of a microcosm of American diversity. And so I, I love Colorado. It's such a fascinating and beautiful state. And so maybe I can finagle a way to get back. <laughs> that would be awesome. We would love that. In your view, why was, as in starting in 2020, and is it so important to have a podcast like this in this country at all? But also, why right now? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, we love public radio and, you know, we're really lucky to be um, a public radio show that also has podcast distribution. I think we reach different audiences through the do, the two mechanisms. But it's, you know, it's a time where people are just really tired of kind of the crazy of America. You know, we're a great country in in so many ways, but we're also going through a hard time. You know, hopefully this is the democratic equivalent of adolescent growing pains and adolescent acting out, you know, that's better than thinking that we really have um, problems that we aren't going to be able to grow through. And I want to live in a sense of hope about what lies ahead. But, you know, I've spent my career really talking to people from so many different backgrounds. And for most of my career, I worked for real um you know, sort of general interest media that didn't have a specific racial demographic, but then both working for news and notes and freelancing for various organizations in the black press and also with Our Body Politic, I really wanted to focus on people of color and particularly women of color because we are often the guardians of democracy. And as I try to point out, it's not just because we're intelligent and nice, although many of us are, it's because <laughs> we need democracy. You know, with the racial wealth gap, we can't opt out of it. You know, some people think, well, if if America's going to heck, I'm just going to throw up the walls of my gated community or go to my estate or whatever. And overwhelmingly, women of color can't do that. So I think sometimes we fight harder. We fight harder for, you know, having a commons, having a sense of you know, a shared responsibility because we live through that. And and I want to acknowledge that complexity. But when you see people like Shea Moss, you know, being hunted mm -hmm. for standing up for democracy, you realize the risks that many Black women and women of color have taken to stand up for democracy, you know, everywhere from the inception of this country through Reconstruction, through the civil rights movement to today. And we acknowledge that and we try to make sense of the choices that we have. Of course, our body politic, as you just mentioned, is about women of color. But let's just turn to black women in particular. In 2018, I wrote a feature article for Ebony Magazine entitled mm -hmm. We've Got the Power, about how yes. black women in particular were pivotal in determining outcomes for the 2017 elections. In that article, I noted that black women have emerged as the highest voting demographic in the country and are considered single-handedly responsible for Democratic wins, particularly in 2017 and also, of course, the 2020 presidential election. I mean, there's 
statistics showing um, black women voting at 94% for certain candidates who won. And then, of course, we have this rich history. We have everyone from Ida B. Wells to Stacey Abrams, you know, being a part of this Mm -hmm. history. So what do you want to say about black women in this political space? Yeah, I mean, I think that black women, first of all, are very diverse and you will have everyone from a Candace Owens to um, a Maxine Waters, Representative Maxine Waters, you know, in that broad umbrella. But for the most part, the majority of Americans support voting rights. The supermajority of black women do, because without it, we don't have a chance to to use our voice. We have to stand up for ourselves. And I think that's something where some constituencies kind of are like, well, if you got this part of the game, I've got this part of the game. And black women have kind of had to do it all. You know, we've had to, you know, I really love, you know, Shirley Chisholm's example. You know, she was a somewhat shy, sometimes awkward woman of immense power from an immigrant working class community who decided that she would run for president because she wanted to see certain things happen. And she stood up to a lot of disrespect, including from black people, especially black men who were like, sit down, lady. And she was like, no, I will not. You know, Mm. and that's the, the kind of spirit that I think happens in all these different ways. You know, we've talked to black women who are chefs and who talk about how there's not really space in in general in food culture for black female chefs. We've talked to black women healthcare leaders who've talked about the ways in which they have to deal with um, populations of people, including people who have no health care coverage, and find a way to get them resources. And black female historians and black female, you know, um, scientist, you know, like Dr. Raven, the science maven. And, you know, <laughs> it's and it's and you shouldn't have to keep saying in some ways like a black female blank, but because we are constantly exceptionalized and marginalized, sometimes you just have to say it. And we don't really say it as much on the show as we show it. We show we show the achievements of black women. Um, both within the specific context of standing up for democracy and in the broader context of standing up for hopes for a better future, you know, and and hopes for a better present. You know, sometimes it's not about a better future. It's like a better present. Like, how can I make today a better day? A recently released AARP study found that Black women voters 50 and up will help decide the balance of power in the next election. So, definitely speaks to what you're talking about. Like, this is definitely a group to pay attention to and one to be reckoned with. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think that, like, you know, the, the numbers are one thing, but also it is the presence of Black women in the face of being, you know, sometimes gaslighted by the broader society. It's like, hey, you might want to pay attention. There's this, like... So many black women highlighted the crisis of democracy that we're in before it was happening. We interviewed a former White House correspondent who is a black woman, and she was on Air Force One with uh, the president when 9-11 happened. And afterwards, she started digging and finding out that uh, there was domestic terrorism coming from white nationalists, and she could not get her editors to name it domestic terrorism. 
And if people like her had been allowed to do their job and really say, this is domestic terrorism, it's not just a race thing, it's a it's a thing that could help bring down democracy, we would be in a different place. So very often, you know, Karen Atia of The Washington Post, who's one of the contributors to our show, uh, we have a fabulous group of contributors like Tiffany Jeffers of Georgetown Law School, Aaron Haynes of the 19th. But, you know, Karen Atia was like, yeah, you know, people after we are proven right, people say, oh, believe black women. But we never get the, in most cases, the resources to be proactive about what we know. And one of the things I'm hoping to do and one of the things I'm working on, you know, kind of in a related effort around data is to figure out how the lived experience of black women and women of color can be factored into predictive analytics about politics so that we can make smarter decisions. We can't afford to ignore the wisdom of any group of people, you know, based on race, gender, or other factors. We need all of our wisdom at the table. And so figuring out ways that we can do that is also part of what I do as a journalist and researcher. Absolutely. And we should also be clear that Women of color, as you mentioned, is a very diverse group. And it's not just black women. There are yep. Asian and Pacific Islander, Latino, and uh, even um, biracial, multiracial um, yeah. women. And uh, from my understanding, women of color make up more than one-fifth of the population. Can you just tell us, uh, as we close, what should we be paying attention to in terms of the upcoming election cycle? One thing that I want us to dig into, because we're really excited about covering the midterms, is that America is in trauma right now. People across the political spectrum are feeling fearful, feeling that they can't trust the system. And so people are making decisions based on being in a state of fear and trauma. And I really want to go into, and we will go into this fall, how do you make sense of the politics of trauma? How do you try not to be overly triggered by, you know, whatever's going on around you and how you feel about it so that you can take a step back and say, am I making a healthy decision for myself, my family, my community, and my country? I think that we have to begin to understand the reasons that People people make decisions for all sorts of reasons. And most of the time, humans are not purely logical. We're not Spock. We're more Kirk or, you know, maybe Uhuru, um, you know, rest in power, Nichelle. But, um, but you know, I really want to untangle some of the ways in which people traumatized by the pandemic, inflation, you know, global war with Russia and Ukraine are approaching politics with fear and how can we begin to release some of that fear to make good decisions for the future? Well, you mentioned earlier uh, coming to Colorado and we are going to hold you to that offer. I would love that. (laughs) I would absolutely love it. But I was researching for this interview and I could not find a direct connection you have to Colorado. But I did see a tweet from November of 2016 and you tweeted out, slept beneath the stars by the Colorado River hiked parts of Appalachian Trail. This land is my land and yours. No one should be afraid. That's right. So you have to tell me, when did you sleep along the Colorado River? And what was that tweet really about? Yeah, I mean, I was actually, when I was um, sleeping beside the Colorado River, I was actually in New Mexico, because as you know, the Colorado River stretches through many different states. And I was with a friend who's a champion kayaker. I love kayaking. I'm Mm. not that great. 
But we had gone out on an overnight camping and kayaking trip and done whitewater kayaking. And, um, you know, this land is so beautiful and Colorado so beautiful. You know, Pikes Peak, gorgeous, you know, just so much, you know, like Colorado is its own little world. And I really appreciate the state of Colorado. But I I also, you know, I come from a grandmother who was a Girl Scout leader, uh, a mother who took me camping and hiking. And I also believe that and I'm a member of Outdoor Afro, you know, which is a big coalition of black people going outdoors. And and I just believe that among the things that are beautiful and healing about this country are nature. Farai, thanks so much for joining us today on Colorado Matters. Thank you so much. I I look forward to us getting together again in a new state. Yes, they say reunited and it feels so good, right? That's right. (laughs) That was journalist Farai Chidea, the creator and host of the podcast Our Body Politic, a weekly podcast that centers the perspective of women of color in our national political landscape. Our Body Politic now airs on CPR News and KRCC on Sundays at 6 p.m. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.